0: The spin-off Podcast Network.
1: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today.
0: The Fold is brought to you by Omedia, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to The Fold, I'm your host Duncan Grieve and this is a podcast where I talk to people in the media about issues that affect it and stories and just generally indulge myself and, and my obsession with, with this business. Today on The Fold I've got uh, Ali Moore who is Currently the head of stuff's hashtag me Too nz unit investigating sexual harassment. She's had that job for three years pretty much on the button now. And the reason I got her on the on the show was because I think probably the one of the most impactful stories of the year so far was her investigation into sexual harassment and power imbalance and just generally extremely poor behavior in the music industry, which came out in late January. It was notable for a few reasons. It named Possum Plows, Lydia Cole, Amy Goldsmith as, as sort of artists and, and employees within the industry, and then Scott McLaughlin and Paul McKessar, uh on the management side. And that's very rare, you know, speaking as someone who's done a little reporting in this area and, and, and read a lot of it. It's hard to do on mul- multiple levels, and so it felt like kind of a, a landmark in that respect. It was also interesting in that McLaughlin copped to his behaviour from the first, and Ali talks at length about you know, just how, how rare that is. And and, you know, Paul has, has subsequently admitted to it as well. And then out the back of that the whole industry, from artists through to people who work in it, has seemed to kind of really feel it, feel the moment and, and that you know, th- these were awful things to have happened, but this was a necessary thing for it to kind of get out of behaviors which it's really indulged in far too long. It should never have happened, that have just hung around it for a variety of reasons for far too long. And you know, there have been statements issues, HUI convened. It's really, really been a just a, a huge example of impact journalism. So we we talk about that. We talk about a previous investigation to AUT, which had a report that came out yesterday that essentially validates all its findings and piles some more on as well. Talk about, you know, what what she's learned over the process of this, the way that the journalistic community has reacted to that style of reporting, which I know from experience it can be anywhere between sort of suspicious to hostile, as well as, you know, also so embracing it in certain quarters. Talk about the John Banks magic talk shit show which is connected to ali because her job prior to to working for stuff was was working at radio live which became magic talk and in the process of doing it just cut her and people who might have sort of more perspectives like hers from it and really retrenched into trying out out to outflank zb to the right and we talk about tvnz and her experiences of of sexism and and sort of gender pay disparity. She even names the TVNZ executive who who laughed at her when, when she had the temerity to ask that she be given the same compensation to her predecessor on breakfast. And we sort of get into it. It's I think it's a really interesting and instructive discussion with a journalist who really is has over the past few years just delivered impactful investigation after impactful investigation and, you know, as I think becomes clear, had a, a quite profound impact on all her sources. I just want to give a profound thank you to Vodafone. Vodafone were actually the first, I think corporate to pull advertising after John Banks' racist statements, and that's not an easy thing to do. Normally, there's this layer of processes. It was basically brought to their attention, and they just immediately pulled it. I think that says something about the character of the organization, that they would do that. They didn't need to sort of seek approval. They just sort of instinctively knew this was not the place to be, and I I know that they're now working on a sort of an ethical advertising policy. I hope that that is something that more firms do going forward but yeah so this podcast is brought to you by Vodafone. Vodafone for Business is you know we use them and they work with innovation made simple and with world-class network technology. Vodafone will help maximize the potential of you and your business. Find out more at Vodafone.co.nz. Can't recommend them highly enough. I also want to shout out to the spin-off members go to members.thespinoff.co.nz to find out more. Every dollar it's donated uh, to to the spinoff is um, ring fans to stay on our editorial operation to, to help us um, create more journalism and podcasts and, and content for you, our audience. All right, let's, let's get into it. This is, this is Ali Moore from Stuff. Kia ora and welcome to the field, Ali Mora.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, there's so, so much to talk about. Uh, you've had quite a, quite a busy start to the year.
1: It's uh, been busier than I expected, I think you can um, safely say. But the work generates the work. So um, we always expect when we put a an investigation out that... Uh, I'm going to spend the next two weeks just answering emails from desperate people, so, which is indeed what I've been doing. Um, yeah.
0: Does this one thinking specifically about the music industry because um, you know there's also been the, the AET uh, aftermath, which we'll, we'll get to. But does this feel different in some ways in terms of either the impact or the, the, the nature of the story, or is this how they tend to go?
1: There were several things that were quite different about that story. Um, we were talking uh, not uh, about, you know, necessary... Well, we were talking about sexual harassment in, in some cases and um, and quite abusive behaviour. But we were also talking about relationships that required heavy contextualisation in the story. So it was really important to build a ton of context into that music industry story um, by talking to experts and by explaining how the women and possum plows um, felt when they were caught in those situations, which were um, ostensibly consensual relationships. Um It was my job to be able to explain to people who perhaps haven't come across this before or haven't put much thought into it um, why that kind of power imbalance uh, can be very harmful for somebody who's on the lower end of that power differential in a relationship like that. So it was a bit different from from that point of view. The other difference was that the music industry, uh, wow, it's small and they talk a lot, so um, news of the story got out over summer. Uh, I haven't had that, and spread very quickly. I haven't had, you know, people didn't know the details, of course, but I haven't had that happen before.
0: The other thing that seemed really striking about it to me as someone who has sort of read these stories both internationally and and within New Zealand was that everyone involved was on the record they had their names you know they consented to be photographed for it uh and that you know that that felt and, and that you also um despite the the legal risk it entailed named both the the men involved. That that felt like a kind of quite quite a landmark in in some ways because both to to protect um, you know the the woman and possum but also to to sort of curtail some of the the risk involved there is often anonymity in some level of it and you know I think that you see that's different or that that has changed the with the impact of the story and and in the aftermath and I thought that it was quite gratifying in a way to see. You know, comments from Lydia and your subsequent follow-up piece that that talked. they that, that felt like there was some sense of a load being lifted for this having been in the public and for people seeing it for what it was.
1: It reframed her experience um, of the last few years and of what happened in that time, and um, and she's feeling empowered and a lot better, which is great. So, in terms of naming people. Um, on both sides of the story, uh, that's always the gold standard and that's always what we try and work towards. Quite often we can't name people because their terror of um, retribution or that their livelihood or their career prospects will be damaged is so great um, that they cannot be named. I mean, it's up to me to, to gain the complainants, this, my sources, trust over what is usually quite a long period of time. Uh, and, and that was the case in this case. Um, Possum, right from the start, was willing to, to be on the record, which I thought was very brave. Uh, and um, by the end of it, we had three, um, almost four, um, women and, and, and Possum on the record, Being able to name the alleged perpetrators is also incredibly important uh, because without that kind of accountability, unfortunately, nothing changes. So when you're able to name somebody and make them publicly face the realities of what they have provably done, you have to be able to prove it, that's when people sit up and take notice. And I think you've seen that in the music industry. You know, the reckoning that has happened afterwards, um, I don't think would have happened if we hadn't been able to name the people involved.
0: No, I mean, and it's sort of, you know, had they not been named, it seems unlikely. Like, you know, in McLaughlin's case, they there was a known, I think if you're being charitable towards Warner, they, they knew of an incident which... You know, you could argue should have been disqualifying on its own, but once that became clear that it was not isolated, yeah, you know, that that ended his relation his his uh, you know employment relationship there. I mean, it was kind of you know that also felt in, instructive that that he copped to it. Was that a, was that immediate, or was that sort of over time that it um, that his you know t- looking at him specifically here for a second that he. Basically accepted that his behaviour had been as
1: it was alleged. Scott copped to it immediately, as soon as my questions landed with him. He phoned me actually, um, and sent me an email and answered all of my questions, which I have a lot of respect for. Actually, um, I you know he realises that he's done some terrible things, um, but he has admitted to those things, and I believe his his apology is genuine. You know, that's a separate issue as to whether his career can be salvaged uh, because Warner, because he did tell Warner that the incident in 2018 that they investigated was a one off mm. and it wasn't. I think that as far as um, a corporate response, and I've seen a lot of bad corporate responses, I thought Warner's was quite reasonable.
0: I mean, how, how rare is it for someone to cop to it the, the way he so did? So rare.
1: And this is the curious thing for me. So over the spread of the last three years that I've been doing this job day in, day out, I've talked to almost a thousand people, mainly women, uh, and many, many, many of them have told me that all they really wanted in the beginning was an apology, a genuine apology. And if they'd had that genuine apology and the person had said, yes, I did those things and I'm genuinely sorry and I would like to make it up to you, if I can, if you'll allow me, Uh, The whole situation would have gone away, ironically. Um, But people don't, for some reason. I think that uh, although it ended in him losing his job, Scott McLaughlin's response was a clever one, to come clean, you know, rip off that Band-Aid, admit the truth, and, you know, perhaps there's some rehabilitation if he works hard at it down the track. It's those who refuse to um, admit that they've done anything, anything wrong who perpetuate the harm, really.
0: Yeah, it seems, you know, you, you look at that and there's a whole, obviously a whole range of different ways that people respond to, to being caught. And I want to talk later about the sort of Social versus criminal justice kind of elements of this, but um that for both the victims and and the perpetrators that the best possible scenario for for them both to to heal is, is that acknowledgement uh, and it just sort of festers otherwise mm.
1: quite often in those situations there's a um, a corporate response that um, suggests that the two two of you should get in the same room and just talk it out. That is often not an option because that is not a safe situation for the victim survivor. Mm. Um, but there should be less... There, there needs to be less severe avenues, paths to walk down than just a formal investigation and a finding that half the time the victim survivor is not even privy to. Mm. You know, so we need to explore. In in my view, we need to explore better forms of and other forms of restorative justice that keep. Both parties that serve the natural justice um, rights of the alleged perpetrator and keep the victim survivor feeling safe.
0: Do you do you believe that that's something that there is a a role for the state in? Like, is there a something that sits between the formal criminal justice system and this kind of very ad hoc? I have found a person who says they're an expert here, or we've conducted an internal investigation. Like it, it does seem like it's. It's kind of a mess in that yeah, area. Yeah,
1: I kind of do, actually, because uh, and I don't, I'm not quite sure what that would be, but there is a, in the absence of it, there's a new cottage industry springing up around the country with uh, reviewers, professional reviewers, um, making a ton of money, I guess, running these uh, investigations, external investigations, and some of them are very good, and some of them... I don't know. Well, there's no professional qualifications needed as far as I know. So, uh, you know, some investigations are run by lawyers. Mm. In AUT's case, uh, it was by a QC, so you can feel pretty comfortable about the results there. But some are just companies that, you know, people who've, I guess, done HR qualifications set up. So I think there is a space there that, you know, central government could... Um, Help out in what that would look like, I
0: don't know, yeah because you know certainly, in our experience of of you know publishing in this area, it's quite frequent to find that the you know your your sources who bring the stories to you they want the story out there. they don't want to you know, and we've had police get in touch with uh, subsequent publications, I'm sure you have too they don't want to speak to police they don't want a criminal justice both for themselves it's or really and, f- and for the the perpetrators that what but what it means is it becomes very ad hoc at, you know like you say whether when there's a, a business or an organization involved it becomes essentially a matter of the character of the the leadership or if it is the leadership what you know so it's, it's it feels like we're very early in figuring mm. out a better response to this than, than the one prior.
1: And organisations um, think that because they've got a policy, uh, and usually it's couched in uh, terms of we have a zero tolerance policy for sexual harassment, table thump, um, they think they've got it covered. Um, they don't really think about the that a policy has to have um, an accompanying pathway that works. Uh, and they don't think about what actually happens in the real world. So what actually happens is if you're being sexually harassed by somebody in your office or in your on the factory floor or wherever it is, you will go to your boss and you will... You know, if it's upsetting enough, quite often you will go to your boss in the first instance. Your boss is likely to be a lower or middle management person um, who has no experience in receiving the kind of disclosure that you're about to make. And when you start talking about the quite horrible and embarrassing things that have happened to you, they throw their hands in the air figuratively and they freak out because as human beings we don't know how to receive those disclosures. Unfortunately, there are plenty of studies that show that the first person to receive a disclosure like that is the most important person in the chain and and that person's next action determines how it's going to go for the survivor. So what does that mean? That means that Top management need to start spending money on making sure everybody is trained. Everybody who has some kind of determination over another employee's situation needs to be properly trained with in-person uh, sexual harassment training, bystander training, that sort of
0: thing. Talking about that sort of cottage industry or, or the, the, the you know the, the kinds of people who provide that training, you know, one of the elements that sprang sprung up in, in the sort of Me Too era is, is obviously journalism, of which you are probably the most prominent New Zealand pra- practitioner of it. And, and this is a new field. You know, I think that's the thing that's, um, you know, this feels like it's, it's something that wouldn't have been published um, 10 years ago, that this would have been considered either a private matter or, well, it's not criminal, therefore it's not news. Have you found that journalism as an industry and culture has, you know, how, how has it responded to, to your work?
1: So there's two things there. I got a private message the other night from a very senior investigative journalist who doesn't work for stuff. So so a colleague um, from another organisation um, who got in touch to congratulate me on the music story but said, uh, pointed out that these this kind of reporting with, the, with its very high risk of litigation um, is just too hard for most outlets and, uh, and therefore they'll, you know, journalists don't pursue their stories. So essentially I have the field, unfortunately, mostly to myself. Uh, and I'm eternally grateful for the lengths my editors will go to to make sure we can publish these stories Um, But right at the beginning of the process, when we set um, Me Too NZ up at stuff, we acknowledged that most of the time, when you take a story like this with with its heavy context uh, to a news editor in the past and say, hey, I want to do this uh, story about this woman who had this terrible situation at work. And the news editor would, probably fair enough, 10 years ago, Look at it and say, mm, so somebody's behaving in a shitty way at work. Why is this a story? So, when we set up Me2NZ, we kind of basically drew a line, a circle around everything around sexual harassment at work and said, right at the outset, everything within that circle we consider and news. And what that meant is that myself and my team could go and pursue those stories and investigate those stories without having to constantly go begging to the news editors for the time to do that, you know, and take every story to them and say, you know, can I do this? Is it news? We don't have to do that. We've got freedom to investigate sexual harassment, you know, and um, inappropriate behaviour where we find it. If it's a good story, we can put our time into it. And has that changed the rest of the industry? Yes, I think it has pushed the boundaries on this kind of reporting, not far enough or often enough uh, at other outlets, if you ask me. Um, And I've said this publicly before. I find that with some outlets, there's only interest where there's some kind of, you know, big name involved or some kind of other titillation. So the media is interested in parliament and law firms and, you know, the music industry or acting. Um, I've done investigations, big investigations into Pizza Hut and um, KFC. Uh, The rest of the media are less interested in hearing uh, or following up stories about um, low-paid workers, which I think is a great shame.
0: The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. yeah, you know, another big investigation of yours recently was was into AUT, which was. It, it obviously there were elements of of sexual harassment. But there was also bullying. The report came out yesterday, which and, and uh, you know I heard on RNZ this morning there were there are people, as as often happens, but you know the, this this one could actually hunt, um, you know, calling for a resignation up to the vice chancellor level. Talk about that investigation and, and as we were talking before before we started recording, about the nature of of accountability and how important that is to this whole process.
1: Commentators I've heard talking uh, on the radio this morning, for example, have made some good points about accountability and that unless you have accountability and responsibility, which probably includes, yes, resignations, um, nothing changes. It's all very well for AUT to, you know, AUT who who strongly pushed back against my reporting, my original reporting into the sexual harassment case uh, that involved Dr. Marisa Patterson and Professor Max Abbott um, were incredibly reluctant to engage Um Derek McCormack, the VC, uh, told me on two occasions that he would do a sit-down interview with me. Um, It was scheduled. He cancelled within an hour of both, I think, within two hours of both. On one occasion, I was actually on campus when he cancelled. So that shows you the kind of tone of of our interactions while I was working on that story last year. Now he's made a personal apology and an apology on behalf of the university um, for the results, a review that they didn't even think was necessary at the time, you know, hard to escape the conclusion that he should resign. So I think there's merit in those calls. I'm just a journalist, though. It's not my place to, you know, to make those calls, but I am hearing those calls, yeah. Mm.
0: And, and you know, I think that, the there is something in the idea that for the institution because I think we can often sort of think about this as a, as a business problem but in some ways it, it feels like it can be even more pernicious when you have a kind of you know that you're less able to move move around I think sometimes that, that these big kind of government or, or sort of NGO type institutions but for the institution to really acknowledge what has gone on and, and acknowledge that it isn't an isolated incident that it's a pattern or a are a way of um, operating that has allows the, allowed these things to happen. That someone has to raise their hand and say this happened on my watch, uh, and that it doesn't seem like there's necessarily a culture of that in, in New Zealand uh, at this point. Has it? Ha, how frequently have your investigations led to an outcome of that nature where it looks like the organisation, the institution, the business has sort of felt it the way that it, it seems like you know, what you have uncovered should should make them feel it
1: really <laughs> unfortunately is it changing
0: like, do, like yes has there I been think some it is sense? I
1: think it is you know um, more recently in the last few, even last six months uh, there does seem to be a realization that this issue is going to is not going to go away and I, and I think a lot of people had that feeling that you know me too was a big explosion of feeling but that was in Late twenty seventeen and that's kind of been done and dusted.
0: Yeah, we've we've found all of the bad guys. Yeah, right. And now it's all sweet. Is that, no, is that not
1: how it is? That's not true. Oh. <laughs> um, if that were true, I'd be out of a job. And I'm like one of those charities I you know, the who say, oh, I, I wish I didn't have to do this work. Um, yes, I really wish I didn't have to do this work. I'd rather do, you know, fun celebrity profiles or something for stuff no, you but <laughs> no I probably wouldn't um, but I think the, the the amount of extra work that every single one of these stories generates for me and my team just shows how how much we haven't solved this and it's up to me to just keep going and, and reminding people People of that, I think.
0: Is it difficult? Because like you say, you're the, you and your team, but it's not a huge team. How, how big big is it?
1: Um, it's a kind of a, well, we, we started off with about six of us and a couple of reporters, um, senior reporters went off on maternity leave. Um, so it's a very fluid thing now and people pop in and out. Um, yeah. There are a number of reporters around the country that I really trust who get, really get this stuff. So we just call on each other and we work collaboratively um, when needed. Um, I do most of the Auckland stuff,
0: irrespective. It's clearly not enough to meet the needs of a nation of five million, right? And and that's not that's not on stuff. That's just a you know that's a partly a journalistic, journalistic economic problem and and all kinds of other things, but. The thing that strikes me is that you know you talked about having spoken to over a thousand um, predominantly women who've been victims of this, but the the yeah. length of time that these stories take to, to gestate means that obviously a relatively small percentage of them actually make oh, it yeah. to print. How do you handle the sort of emotional load of hearing this stuff and knowing, relatively frequently for any number of reasons, that. Can't make it to print, and and is there a sort of a sense of like having to modulate expectations um, with your with your sources?
1: Yes, and I've got. Be- I think I'm getting better at that. In terms of how do I deal with it, I worry about it constantly, and and I have regular professional supervision with a psychologist. Um, I didn't start that until relatively recently, which was my bad <laughs> probably should have done it from the start but yes I do get very wrapped up in people's stories and they are very affecting almost all of them it's difficult to manage expectations um, I tell I tell people these days that I've got several I've got a queue that is several months long um, and if they're prepared to wait then hopefully we'll get to them and not every story can be can be published. Not every story can be stacked up. Uh, I usually am quite clear that I believe my sources and I believe something upsetting happened to them, Uh, but that doesn't mean we can publish their story. Um, If if we can't, you know, sometimes it comes down to something that happened in a room and only two people were in that room. And if there is no other corroborating evidence, very difficult to get that story to publication point because of the inherent legal risks um, and, and just because of journalism, you mm-hmm. know. Well, talk, let's talk about the, the legal risks because New Zealand
0: has a, you know, it's, it's. I don't think it's as dangerous a place to publish as Australia, but it's certainly compared to, to the US, for example, our laws are far more... Um, you know, it's it's a it's a hairier prospect and you know, that would be a hard thing in a functioning journal, journalism economy, but in one where revenues are, are shrinking and, and more with less is mm-hmm. the is a sort of a catch cry that's over a decade old now. That it's a heavier load for the sort of executive um, and corporate side to mm-hmm. to think about because I mean, Fairfax had the biggest defamation settlement I think in, in uh well it might be that Colin Craig's overtaken it now, but you know, over a million dollars, as I understand it. You know, so the the risk. Which of case. The I think that was Stephen Jennings um, to to uh, I don't sure whether it was staff or yeah. That's but, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think you know, it's maybe five or made. six years ago. I mean, that's you're, you're writing about an oligarch <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, don't sue me. Yeah, you know, they, they've got some some heavy lawyers, but but that's always. risk in these situations and especially when you're writing about people of means who are effectively fighting for their livelihoods they've got Mm, a lot mm, they've got a lot to lose mm. uh how how you know do you think that our environment legally is is kind of well structured and have you no has that has that helped you or has that held you back
1: I think oh, it holds everybody back. I think that the, um, I disagree with you slightly about the defamation laws in New Zealand and Australia. Are, from my observation, they're quite similar. Um, and they are almost diametrically opposite to defamation law in the United States, where Harvey Weinstein would have had to prove that the New York Times was wrong in their reporting. Here, I have to prove that I was right, that what I, to the best of my ability, th- that what I published was true. So that's the opposite way. And it does have a chilling effect, undoubtedly. Um, and, and once again, you know, I don't want to sound like an arslicker, but <laughs> once again, I have to thank my, the courage and the conviction of my editors and my managing editor Um, to be willing to to get these stories across the line because it is um, a call that they have to make right, you know, nine o'clock on the night before publication. Our legal team is wonderful in that they work to they work to try and help us get the story to publication instead of saying, ooh, no, 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 this one, don't touch this one. This That's is, rare. The, like, it is so very rare. I've worked with lawyers at three different
0: media organisations and certainly more than once I've felt like their, their bias was to not publish, mm. almost to the point of actually mm. rewriting stories and you mm. kind of get the copy back and you're like, this is. Yeah.
1: No, um, don't get me wrong. Um, Robert Stewart, our, uh, our lawyer, sends me back to square one, back to the drawing board alley on the regular. This is why these stories takes a lot because I'll take him an early draft and he'll go, nah, <laughs> go away and do this, this and this. And so I go away. I mean, this is what happened with the music industry story. We, we had to establish a pattern of behaviour. And I think, I mean, this is just, you know, I... I Robert Stewart may disagree with me my editors may disagree with me on this but my perception is that it's not that they're so concerned about being sued um but they want to know they have a s- absolutely rock solid defense if they are so th- and that's kind of on me i need to know and be able to prove to them that my reporting is so detailed and s- completely rock solid Um, and then they make the decision on whether to publish on the basis of that. But I think our defamation laws do suppress um, these kind of stories, undoubtedly. Um, And the Australian um, example, I mean this is a bit of a sidetrack, but the Australian example is really interesting because um, I think there's a perception now, because there have been a couple of very high-profile defamation and cases. And huge numbers. That, that's yeah. the thing
0: that I think was that what I was alluding to, was that there seems to be a lid that is kind of a deep breath, but it's also over there it could bankrupt you.
1: Yeah. The days before publication, I barely sleep because I'm poring over every word for the hundredth time. So, you know, and that's a protection. You know, if, you, if you're if you know that your reporting is solid and your sources are willing to show up for you in the in the event of a court case and testify to the truth of their the information they've given you then all of those are the little building blocks that help get, get, you, to get publica- you to publication
0: yeah one of the things i'd like to to talk about just to shift slightly is um you know because you've got this this career that's had really uh you know, substantial involvements in, in television and and in, in radio. One of the other big sort of media stories of the this very still very young year is um, John Banks and and his appalling comments on on Magic Talk. And prior to starting at Me Two and Z, you were at Radio Live, which was the predecessor yeah. to to Magic Talk. Do you, do you want to talk about sort of what what? You know, your experience of Talkback, which is quite a different branch of, of the media to the one that you're in now, uh, what the culture was like at, at Radio Live and what your sort of observations are about how that station changed when it became Magic Talk?
1: I loved radio. I loved radio far more than television. Apologies to all my ex, my wonderful ex-TV and Z colleagues. But um, radio is almost uniquely an exciting platform to work on I'm sure you'd agree it's very you're talking to one person so it's very intimate it's you and the you know the dude that's driving home from work in his car or the mum picking up her kids from school you know whereas television you think you've you've envisaged your audience is a bit larger than that it's very creative. Live radio is um, is exciting and quite a wild ride sometimes. Um, I think people are unfairly dismissive of talkback. Talkback radio is an important friend for a lot of people, a lot of lonely people. Um, it might be their only... God, I'm tearing up. Um, (laughs) It might be their only interaction with a a person, you know, in their day. And a lot of those people are elderly. Um, And if you were to, you know, people have in the last couple of weeks said, you know, oh, is it, it, should it be the end of talkback? Should we just not have this this kind of programming anymore? Um, I don't support that at all because, as I say, you know, it provides a, provides a really valuable service for some vulnerable people. And it can be great fun. Uh, but it does not have to be misogynistic. It does not have to be racist. It does not have to punch down. And I think that, obviously, has been Major Talk's problem.
0: I mean, what? What? how do you, you know, did you continue to listen to or, or engage with the station after leaving? and Or, or even just, a layer out what what are your perceptions of what happened to it and just as you talked about the building blocks that get you to publication there are sort of all these little nudges that um kind of point a station in a particular direction from recruiting to policies around dumping calls and um yeah, you know, producers who are uh, who sort of sign off on topics for the day how how did how does John Banks happen you know like when radio live felt like it was actually a much more moderate station when you were there just well, in, in so were, many respects. well they had
1: me and willie jackson yeah <laughs> for 3 hours a day so that's a stark contrast to to where they are now I think there are two possibilities and I I can't claim to know which one it is. It is either very badly managed or there has been a deliberate strategy to try and take perhaps some of um, ZB's audience um, by veering right. I don't know which one it is.
0: How how big did ZB loom in your sort of imagination when you're at Radio Live? Like, because of the the way that all of these stations really have kind of cross-town rivals.
1: Oh, it's incredibly dominant, and there didn't seem to be anything right back to the Radio Pacific days that that what became MediaWorks could could do about that. So whether that, as I say, whether that was a deliberate strategy when they got rid of me and pretty much everybody else on their um, roster, and in at the end of twenty seventeen up to mid-2018 and replace them with the hosts that are there now. You know, I don't know whether that was um, intentional. But I think the intent does show in the people that they bring on to to fill in. John Banks?
0: I mean, it's not like John Banks had hidden his views over the past 25 years.
1: No, he's been pretty consistent. <laughs> yeah, he's nothing if not that.
0: Um, mm. And... Uh, the, the the other medium that you, you spend a lot of time in is is television and uh, you know and and I, I've read you know some interviews with you where you talked about you know for example the um, salary uh, situation with Hosking uh, on I think it was Breakfast. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want, just talk, talk about your time in television and 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 like I, I think I said off air as well that that it feels like you've had this kind of regular experience of. Uh, you know, various forms of, of sexism throughout your career that that ultimately probably left you know horrible things to experience, but left you quite well placed to with this well of empathy for those who have experienced the strands of it that that fed into your ability to make me too happen. Well, that's too nice, happen. but I
1: don't think I'm unique in that. <laughs> what is it like? One in four women uh, who've had a job have experienced. That probably the same kind of sexual harassment that and unfair treatment, you know, uh, unequal pay um, th- that I have. So yeah, I don't think I'm unique by any means. And I had a lot of there are a lot of wonderful people working in television, and I had a lot of um, terrific colleagues, male and female. So, you know, I'm not going to paint it as, as you know, the, what, what's the, you know, the trenches, you know, what's that quote, mm. that Andrew Thompson quote? But it is still dominated in the news area heavily by older white men. You know, TVNZ, for example, apart from a very brief period in the early 2010s, I think, has never had a a female head of news. Uh, And the instance I'm talking about, it was a um, ring-in from the BBC who was filling in for a while. So, you know, the decisions are made by people who came up in a certain era and worked in a certain way and they're very slow to change. the the salary thing is really difficult one for television because you don't have the same metrics as a normal job you know how do you how do you measure the worth of a television presenter they used to have something at tvnz called the system 7 which was a regular survey that delved very very deeply into what people, viewers, liked and really didn't like about you as a presenter. And once a year you would have to go in and sit in front of the head of news and hear about all the things that people did and didn't like.
0: But isn't that so prone to like,
1: yeah. society
0: is sexist. Yeah. So people aren't going to like women Systemic as much. Issues.
1: You know? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, you know. How um Bill Ralston was able to to laugh when I said, yes, I'll do the job that, the exact same job tomorrow morning that Mike Hosking was doing this morning, if you pay me the same amount to do the exact same job, comes down to systemic sexism that's woven through all of our lives.
0: And now that you have had, you know, Decent chunks of time working in senior roles in in those sort of three kind of core mediums of of the media. Do you do you feel like you're home? Oh uh,
1: yeah, I love what I do. I yeah, I, I started in a print journalism, and you know I was the shit kicker, you know, baby journalist in the nineteen eighties um, before the internet and before actually word processors had just come to the Melbourne Herald the year before I started. Uh, So we did journalism in a very different way back then when I was last a newspaper reporter. But I get enormous satisfaction and great excitement, actually, when a good story comes my way. I love the fact that I'm able to spend my time piecing things together. Um, And the more I do this work, the better I am at it you know as i said to you i did love radio i love live television as well i find i always found recorded television quite boring to put together you know what i mean it's you know when you have to go and do the same piece of camera 40 times you know before the director's satisfied <laughs> i find all that you know we used to go out to film at people's places and they would keep their children home from school for the day because the TV crew's coming and it's so exciting and they'd be bored to tears within minutes, you know. (laughs) So, But live telly's great, love that. And live radio, as I said, enormously satisfying. But what I do now, not just because I enjoy the work, which I really do, maybe I was a detective in a former life, but um, the, the impact it has on people, and I do acknowledge that on one side, the impact on people's lives can be enormous. They might lose their jobs. Um, they might, you know, find their reputations tarnished through their own actions. Let's be frank. Um, but on the other side, the impact on um, my sources and the mostly women that Whose stories I take up it has been almost to a person profound. The the people, the women and possum in the music industry story um, have said. Lydia Cole said publicly that um, this has completely ref- reframed her experience for her, and she feels empowered and as if a load is lifted. And that's really common. And I kind of spend my time nursing people through the publication process, because it's really rigorous and can be a bit re-traumatising sometimes. And it's up to me to, to to try and mitigate that as I can. Um, and I w- I'm always up front. I tell people how rough this is going to be. But after publication, I don't think I've had a single person who hasn't felt an enormous weight lifted off them. And that keeps me going. Mm.
0: Well, that seems a... <laughs> Good place to, to end there. And, and, you know, just shows the impact that, that journalism, that your journalism uh, is having. So, power to you, and thank you so much for, for joining me on the Fold,
1: Ali. Kia ora. thank you very much.
0: That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis.